0: Everyone, please take your seats. Um, I'm Barbara Slavin. I'm acting director of the Future of Iran initiative at the Atlantic Council. And I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank Bill Lures and Iris Berry for working with us from the Iran project. Again, uh, this is a a great showing of people. I hope we have a lot of people also watching online. Um, We're going to deepen the conversation about Iran's regional uh, posture. Obviously, I think what we've seen over the last year is that um, the nuclear aspects of the deal are all being implemented very well. Uh, The economic aspects are a little slower in coming. But a lot of the criticism that we hear in the United States about Iran now has nothing to do with what they're doing on the nuclear front. It has to do with everything else Iran is doing. Uh, That includes what Iran is doing domestically in terms of continuing to put dual nationals in jail. And of course, it includes missile launches, which are not forbidden by the JCPOA, but are not supposed to be taking place, according to a UN resolution. And it includes what Iran is doing in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, you name it. Uh, I was very glad that the gentleman from Saudi Arabia earlier raised the issue of what Iran is doing in the region in terms of its activities in Arab countries. So that's what we're going to deal with today. We have three fabulous experts uh, with unique perspectives. We're going to start with Bruce Rydell. I've known Bruce for uh, a good 20 years or so. um, At least. uh, Since his, uh, his service on the NSC, he served in four administrations. Uh, started with the CIA. He knows more about the Middle East and South Asia than almost anybody I know in this town. And he knows a lot about Saudi Arabia in particular. So let's build on the discussion that we had earlier. Um, Iran and Saudi, uh, it's hard to remember when relations have been this poor. Uh, We've had a number of incidents that have taken place. Um, The execution of Sheikh Nimr, uh, a Shia Sheikh by the Saudis, followed by the Iranian trashing of the Saudi embassy in in Tehran, the breaking of diplomatic relations. They're on opposite sides in pretty much all of these uh, regional uh, conflicts. Um, Is there any possibility that this hostility can uh, be mitigated? Um, Or uh, given where the Saudis are now with a new king and a very ambitious deputy crown prince, a lot of domestic problems, uh, are they going to have to continue to have uh, Iran as a, a foil, uh, perhaps a scapegoat to some extent for internal problems and concerns?
1: Uh, well, First of all, thank you, Barbara, for the kind remarks and thank you for inviting me to be here today. Um, the short answer is not a whole lot, but I think there is one exception which really is worth looking at and I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, from the Saudi perspective, as as we heard earlier, Uh, Iran is an aggressive power seeking to expand its influence in the region. Uh, You've you've heard it many times, but the Saudis constantly repeat that four Arab capitals are now uh, in the orbit of Tehran, Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut, and Sana'a. I think that's an exaggeration, but that is a deeply held feeling uh, inside the kingdom. The kingdom is also going through, as you alluded to, a very important uh, leadership change, a generational change in leadership. Uh, I think the odds are now better than even that we're actually going to skip a whole generation and go from the 80s to the 30s uh, in the next change of leadership. Uh, And I think you can actually see that going on in this city in this week.
0: Right, Mohammed bin Salman is here. Mohammed bin
1: Salman is here and he's being received. Uh, Almost in a coronation, um, though nobody on either side would want to use that uh, term other than me. Um, There is not in this uh, complex internal uh, politics within the royal family, as far as I can determine, a spokesman for the let's work closely with the Iranians on cooling tensions in the region. I don't see that person in in this conversation. There is also very, very, very strong clerical establishment views on the relationship with Iran. Uh, And if you you want to see the one policy of King Salman that the Wahhabi clerical establishment endorses the most enthusiastically right now, it's the keeping the Iranians out of the hajj. And it's not about just keeping Iranians out of the Hajj, it's about keeping Shias out of the Hajj. And if it can be expanded to that, that would be extremely popular. I'm not advocating that, uh, but that's the political landscape in which the the kingdom operates. I don't see prospect for much movement on Syria and Iraq in the foreseeable future. The one exception that I alluded to, I think, is Yemen. Um, The Yemen war is, in some ways, the unintended byproduct of the Iran nuclear deal. I don't mean that the Obama administration wanted a Yemen war, obviously it didn't. But a confluence of events, the death of King Salman, I'm sorry, the death of King Abdullah, the signing of the nuclear agreement, uh, actions by the Houthi uh, Saleh uh, alliance in Yemen, all created what turned out to be the atmosphere in which Saudi Arabia and its allies launched Operation uh, Decisive Storm. The good news is a year later, more than a year later, it's clearly been a storm. It has not been decisive. And I think that that realization has now sunk in in Riyadh. Uh, some of the statements that we've been hearing from Foreign Minister Adil al jaber I think strongly indicate that. Um, And I think that's an opportunity. And I think that's an opportunity that the Obama administration ought to grab onto. Uh, It's not a question of trying to broker a Saudi-Iranian deal over over Yemen. It's a question of trying to help the Saudis uh, find an honorable way to bring the war to an end. And one of the ways you can do that is by declaring that Iran's goal of turning Yemen into a puppet of Iran has been thwarted. Now, many of you will look at me and say, but Iran never intended to turn Yemen into a puppet. Exactly. That's how you end wars, (laughs) is you figure out a way to accomplish your objective, whether or not your objective made a whole lot of sense in the beginning. The United States, I think, can play that role. And here I also want to tell you one more thing. Uh, I want to commend uh, the Congress. Uh, Because it was the Congress, and particularly Senator Chris Murphy, who began the process of putting some pressure on the Saudis to start rethinking about their war effort. Uh, So I think Chris Murphy deserves a number of shout-outs today, and one of them is also for what he's trying to do in persuading Saudi Arabia to back out of the war in Yemen.
0: Let me just add one thing. Uh, There was, at least I saw it on Twitter, so it must be true. Uh, The United Arab Emirates has declared that their intervention, that the war in Yemen is over as far as they're concerned. So I assume that Saudi Arabia, without active help from the UAE, would have a great, UAE has had uh, special forces in Yemen, I believe, would have great difficulty carrying on uh, this campaign.
1: Without question. um... The UAE, as the Washington Post called it, is the Sparta of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, for those who study studied ancient Greek politics, that's not exactly a very good place you wanna be. Uh, but they have provided the real military muscle in this adventure. Um, and I think that that's another sign of movement towards ending a war. Let's bear in mind, there are more Yemenis than there are Saudis. There are more Yemenis than there are Syrians. I'm not comparing the level of devastation. According to the UN, more than 21 million Yemenis are at severe risk of humanitarian disaster. Uh, so ending this conflict uh, is a, a substantial move in the right direction to calming the Middle East at least a little bit.
0: Very good. Um, Mac uh, McInnes, uh first appearance here at the Atlantic Council from uh, American Enterprise Institute. We we were interviewed together on Kurdish television, yes. and it was a very good experience. And I'm glad that, that you can be here to bring your perspective uh, with your background also in the Pentagon uh, and in, in intelligence regarding Iran. Um, Iran's activities in Syria and in Iraq have also been a focus for concern uh, on the part of the Saudis, GCC, and others. How do you see uh, Iran's experience in fighting in both those countries? We have now pictures of General Suleimani, the head of the Quds Force, is supposedly supervising the campaign uh, in Fallujah, doesn't seem to be going that well, I must admit. The Iranians have had a lot of losses of the IRGC uh, in Syria, uh, working with Shia groups from as far afield as Pakistan, and certainly with Lebanon, uh, with Hezbollah. Uh, do you see any glimmers of solutions in these places, or do you think Iran is just going to continue to double down on its investment in these countries? Yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you, Barbara, for having me. This is a, it's a great event so far. What I would say, and this actually builds on some comments from the last panel, uh, is that what, what you've seen in the region the last, say, five years is an Iran that is, on the one, that is on the one hand, Really struggling to preserve what it had built up, insofar as it's what we call the the axis of resistance, which is their network of partners and proxies. The crown jewel of which is Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, but that, that works throughout the region, uh, you know, bringing in a number of Iraqi uh, Shia militias uh, as well as some within Syria. And, and Damascus was always the the linchpin, even though. Assad was not an ideological ally of Iran, but they, over the last few decades, they had become in, so intrinsically interlinked uh, and represented, frankly, the uh, kind of each other's strategic depth uh, mm-hmm. that preserving uh, President Assad became an existential issue for Iran. Uh, and in, in order to preserve what it had built ever since the revolution throughout the region. And I think to some degree we uh, here in the U.S., at least from what I remember in my time uh, at, at U.S. Central Command and at the Pentagon, uh, that there was a certain degree of underestimation back in the beginning of the Civil War in 2011, 2012, uh, about how far Iran would go in order to preserve Assad. And I think most people would agree if the Iranians had not help prop up Assad Assad would have fallen a long time ago uh, and I think that that's something that we 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 should be very careful about underestimating that as we go forward uh, I think what Iran has <coughs> continues to face is this kind of what I call minimal escalation cycle, where they want to do only as much as they feel like they need to in order to help preserve Assad for the next stage. The problem is, is that every time they have escalated, whether it's bringing in Lebanese Hezbollah uh, more explicitly in 2012 and 2013, uh, or you know the, their most recent surge that they had with uh, with the Russian intervention, um, is that it gives them a little bit of breathing room. It gives them they gain some uh, some territory, uh, but then the opposition. Puts pushes back again, Uh, and we kind of keep ending up in this stalemate, and Iran has to reevaluate, do we go in bigger? Do we go in harder? Uh, And and I think that this is something that the Iranians, they would not, they don't want to be in this fight in Syria. Uh, They would rather not have to fight for what they used to have for free. Uh, so I think that this is something that they want to get themselves out of this, but they don't know how uh, because their capabilities, their their unconventional warfare capabilities, which they have been doing some really fascinating uh, modifications to as the war goes on in Syria, this new expeditionary force that they have, uh, you know, combining headquarters of a Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps brigade, and sometimes even the regular uh, Iranian Army Special Forces Brigade headquarters coming in, you know, a cadre of people to run a very large Shia militia that's from Syria, that's from Afghanistan, that's from Pakistan, uh, and and that's been it's been fascinating to watch as a military guy uh, how this has developed, but it's is turning into a situation where they did that and it's helped a little bit, but it's not helping enough. So the question is, do we actually get to that point where they're willing to do a, a direct conventional military intervention? Actually sending in Iranian you know, units, maneuver units there into, the, into, into Syria. I still think that they will do everything they can before that point. I don't think they want to do that. I think there's actually even ideological reasons why they would not want to be seen uh, you know with Iranian forces in that kind of position. And so I think that they're going to keep pushing the keep pushing the Russians, keep pushing Hezbollah to do as much as they can, but I think they're going to get stuck at some point. I don't know if they have the capability. And in Iraq, it's a it's a situation where, you know, they also they have this huge opportunity ever since the U.S. invasion in 2003 uh, to kind of reshape Iraq uh, into a more reliable ally, into somewhere that they have uh, freedom of maneuver for the IRGC uh, operatives uh, that can integrate into this axis of resistance. Uh, and over time, what I call this Iranianization project—they've been, as they've been doing in Lebanon for many mm-hmm. decades—they're uh, doing with Assad's government right now and re- kind of reforming the military and the intelligence apparatus to look more like mm-hmm. Iran. And I think you've been seeing certainly a, the biggest part of that project has been going on in Iraq the last few years. Um, but the problem is is that the, the, the Iraqis, a lot of them still resent this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have a situation where you are sowing, you know ISIS is probably going to be defeated militarily in the next year or two. Um, and I think you're looking at a situation, and this is what the U.S. has to remember: the situation after ISIS may be defeated. What is left in Iraq? Okay. Uh, and I think you see the seeds of potential intra-Shia, you know, or Shia-Kurdish or Arab-Kurdish, uh, you know, civil war breaking out uh, because the, many of the Iraqis resent this Iranian dominance, uh, and the buildup of these Shia militias uh, under Iranian, uh, you know, uh, guidance uh, is is creating, you know, just an uncontrollable situation. I think long term, and so I think that's where we're seeing a, a longer term picture that Iran I don't think knows quite how to manage.
0: Thank you. Um, Ellen Lepson, distinguished fellow at Stimson and uh, briefly at the Atlantic Council, former president of Stimson Center and served on the NIC. Um, I'm going to give a, a, a little bit of a, an advance uh, advertisement <laughs> for the fact that a number of us have been working with Ellen on a paper which will lay out suggestions for US strategy toward Iran for the next decade. And that's going to come out uh, in about a month, I think. Okay. So we're really looking forward to that. But just on this, this narrow, uh, more narrow topic of Iran's regional activities, um, how do you think Iran uh, uh, is regarding the current balance of forces, uh, the opportunities that it received after the US overturned Saddam? Uh, and the crisis in Syria, uh, do you think that there is a way that Iran can scale back its ambitions? I sometimes see that uh, writing in, in the Iranian press that all they're really concerned about is having the conduit to Hezbollah, that they don't necessarily have to have, I love this, this uh, word, Iran, Iranization of the security forces in both Syria and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Is it a narrow goal or is it a broader goal? Do they see a real opportunity to have this uh, Shia crescent that... Uh, King Abdullah of Jordan once talked about.
3: Well, thanks, Barbara. I think those of us who've tried to follow Iran over many years um, are always struck with this, um, not necessarily a paradox, but this friction between an image of Iran that is essentially a lonely country that is insecure, doesn't have any natural allies, and basically doesn't know who to trust in its neighborhood versus an ambitious Iran that does believe that it has natural attributes of leadership, that competes with the Turks, competes with the Saudis, wants to be recognized as a preeminent power in the region. And we have to somehow reconcile these two uh, maybe contradictory, maybe complementary uh, aspects of Iran's foreign policy and national security policy. And I think, independent of the uh, nuclear agreement, we do see, as you said, Barbara, because of American action in Iraq that gave Iran an an amazing opportunity, Iran now has, in Iraq and Syria, um, an attempt to create a kind of strategic, uh, strategic advantage in the region that I think we'll be living with for quite some time to come. It has some real downsides from an American interest perspective, but it may be a reality that um, at least begins to acknowledge uh, an Iranian role in the region that all the powers in the region are going to have to come to terms with. Um, it doesn't mean that Iran has easy successes. I think your description of getting bogged down in Syria is is very compelling. And Bruce's uh, image of the Saudis getting bogged down in Yemen, I mean, I, I have this sort of mischievous thought that maybe finally some of these countries will have some sympathy for why the United States doesn't believe in military adventurism anymore. You know, that you, you can go in thinking that you have very limited war aims and that it's a a sort of a a surgical intervention and that you'll come out quickly but guess what Uh, in virtually all combat environments it it never ends as as neatly and as quickly as people want it to so iran is having this sobering experience in syria and it, it let's remember that the relationship between syria and iran was almost an accident of history it was because of intra baath feuds and the Syrians not wanting to do anything nice to Saddam Hussein. So they sort of stumbled into a relationship that now has some great uh, strategic benefit to them. So I think that um, when we think of whether there's a post-nuclear agreement opportunity to reshape Iran's role in the region, I think we have to be realistic about what parts of Iran's activities uh, are subject to change and what are not. And I would say that expect Iran to uh, assert that it has an abiding interest as one of the parties, not necessarily the exclusive or dominant party, but one of the parties that will be shaping the politics of both Iraq and Syria for some time to come. I think that we should also talk a little bit about Hezbollah because Hezbollah, to me, is you know, their greatest foreign policy success story. And I don't think we can confine confine the Iranian Hezbollah relationship to the territory of of Lebanon anymore. It's much bigger than Lebanon. It is an ally, it's really Iran's only reliable ally, if you will, Mm -hmm. but we still wanna think about how much does Hezbollah want to act independently of Iran? Is Hezbollah um, an instrument of Iran or is Hezbollah now, uh, in a way, an independent actor. So that would be another uh, way to, to look at it. Um, so, I guess my point is that um, Iran, by this analysis, is actually uh, having some... is on a, a trajectory of demonstrating that it is a force to reckon with beyond its borders, which is different than how they were talking about exporting the revolution, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, they've, it's, 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 there are twists and turns to this story, and Iran now does have some influence and power on the, um, the the destiny of other countries in the region. It's not just an advocate for Shia minorities, it or Shia majorities in some cases. Um, its interests are beyond pure uh, advocacy for the Shia cause, and it does see its leadership as part of the landscape of the region. It explains why the Saudis are so profoundly um, uncomfortable with Iran becoming recognized as a greater power in the region. We have to try to somehow turn this into an advantage for US diplomacy to encourage the region uh, to move towards um, a a more productive uh, dialogue. But should Iran and Saudi Arabia find a way to talk to each other, I think the best advice to the US is let it happen.
0: Sure. Get out of the way. Don't try to uh, micromanage it. Yeah. yeah, Bruce, let me <coughs> come back to you about that. I mean, the uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia were able to at least talk to each other uh, when King Abdullah was there, when the foreign minister was Saud Al Faisal. Um, I remember certainly after the Kobar Towers uh, terrorism incident of 1996, where an Iranian-backed uh, Saudi group was blamed. <coughs> Uh, for this terrorist incident against Americans that um, uh, it was, I guess it began with Rafsanjani and then under Khatami. Uh, Iranian diplomats met, uh, actually Rouhani went uh, and met with King Abdullah and they reached an agreement on a kind of security, understanding between the two countries. Is all of that now swept away because of the, the personnel changes, because uh, Sad al-Faisal has passed away, King Abdullah has passed away? Uh, and the, uh, the, the people in control now have no personal history of, uh, of talking to the Iranians is, is part of the problem on the Iranian side. I have heard, for example, that Javad Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, uh, has expressed his desire to go and, and, and talk to uh, the Saudis, but he wants to meet with King Salman. He won't be satisfied with just Adil al-Jubeir, right. who he considers uh, mm-hmm. you know, a kid uh, and, and not someone a member of the royal family.
1: Um, before going to your question, you brought up Kobar, and yeah. it is uh, worth remembering when one talks about the Saudi Iranian relationship that last summer, uh, Saudi intelligence renditioned the mastermind of Kobar, uh, Ahmed Mugassil, uh, from Beirut, uh, brought him to the kingdom. Um, the Saudi charge against Mr. Mugassil is a lot more than the Kobar towers. Uh, Mr. Mogasil was involved in the assassination of Saudi diplomats in the late 1980s on three continents. Um, typically when the Saudis rendition a person like this, uh, there is a long period of silence and then one day uh, uh, Riyadh Radio announces that Mr. Mogasil has been brought to justice and just prior to having his head separated from his shoulders, he gave the following confession. <laughs> Um, I suspect that that will come. I don't know when, but when it does come, uh, Mr. Mugassil, I think, will paint a picture of Iran's involvement in terrorism, which will be quite uh, fascinating. Uh, he will be able to say that he knows what the Supreme Leader ordered and what the Supreme Leader didn't order. Now, many people in the West will dismiss it, say it was coerced, uh, but many Uh, But very few Saudis will doubt it and very few Emiratis will doubt it and very few Kuwaitis and Bahrainis will doubt it. Um, Yes, there have been periods of Saudi-Iranian rapprochement and I think conceivably there can be periods of Saudi-Iranian rapprochement in the future. Uh, As I said earlier, I think Yemen is is an interesting place to start a building block there. But I think if you look at it from the Saudi standpoint, what is so worrisome is that over the course of the last decade and a half, they see Iranians' uh, involvement advancing, first in Iraq, uh, also in Afghanistan. And they see, as as you rightly pointed out, Matt, that the uh, decision of the Iranians to send Hezbollah into the fight in Syria saved Bashar Assad. The Saudis have a profound feeling about what has happened to 400,000 Syrians. Uh, And my experience with uh, Saudi uh, leaders uh, is that they personalize things quite a bit. Uh, King Abdullah personalized the Palestinian conflict quite a lot, and I see in King Salman personalization of of the Syrian conflict. Uh, and they see the Iranians as responsible for the death of 400,000 Syrians, and they think that Bashar Assad ought to be brought to justice for doing that. Now, we can all say, but that's not going to get you to a political settlement. But this is the Middle East. This isn't uh, <laughs> this isn't 15th Street and, and uh, Massachusetts Avenue. This is about uh, accomplishing uh, uh, a measure of uh, of making Assad. Uh, pay for the crimes he has forbidden. So right now I don't see rapprochement in the future. Um, last thing I want to say on this is it's well worth going back and reading about what uh, Saudi said about the Shah. Uh, King Faisal's comments on the Shah <laughs> are in many ways a lot more um, biting than any Saudi comments I've seen on the on the mullahs. Uh, King Faisal regularly referred to the Shah as that megalomaniac on the other side of the Gulf. (laughs) And he told Henry Kissinger over and over again, you are feeding a megalomaniac's addiction to weapons and it will come to a terrible end for you and for Iran. So yes, it's an Arab-Persian thing. It's a Saudi-Iranian thing. It's a Sunni-Shia thing. uh, But this is a complex rivalry with deep, deep roots. And it's not amenable to simple... Uh, resolution and certainly not amenable to American mediation.
0: Wow. Um, Matt, I wanted to raise the missile issue uh, because that's also one of the things that's come up since the JCPOA was implemented, a lot of uh, complaints in Congress about Iranian missile launches. I think they've had two or three? At least two. At least two. Okay. Uh, None none lately, which is interesting. how important is that issue is it a threat in any way to the nuclear deal is it a side issue is it realistic to expect that iran would not continue missile uh, launches given the weakness of its of its conventional forces uh, how important are missiles to iran's defense strategy
2: yeah. well i think the uh, the People that want to do something about the missile program, and I've actually written about this, uh, you know—we sh- it's not the same thing as trying to negotiate the nuclear program. Uh, because on, on the one hand, the nuclear program, because they made a decision at some point in time, uh, and we actually debate. Uh, now when they made this decision uh, that they weren't going to pursue a weapon anytime in the near future Uh, you know which is that decision was somewhere between 2009 and 2012 in my opinion but I think probably around 2010 Uh, that you know the uh, the nuclear program therefore because it was never going to come into existence in the near term it may I still worry it's going to come become a very big problem for us at the end of the next decade when the deal sunsets. Uh, But because that was not already part of their their military base and their deterrence base, uh, the, the nuclear program was not existential to them. The missile program is a different beast. Yeah. The missile program is part of their existential deterrence uh, because they, only, they have two basic pillars of that. One is their, their, their asymmetric warfare threat, which is primarily through their network of proxies and terrorist groups that they work with, which is basically to intimidate Saudi Arabia, or Israel, or the US, or Turkey, or Egypt, or anyone else, that if you hurt us, we're going to light you up from a terrorism perspective. Uh, And the other threat that they have is their missile program. Uh, Because they don't have a classic conventional uh, uh, military power. They don't have an air force that can assert air superiority over anywhere in the Middle East. Uh, they don't have a navy that can do the same thing. They, could, and they certainly do not have an army uh, in, that's in any condition these days, maybe come in the future, uh, to be able to take large amounts of territory in Iraq or Saudi Arabia or Kuwait and sustain that. Um, so they're dependent on their missile program. Uh, and because of that, it's, it's much more non-negotiable than the nuclear program ever was. Uh, and I I think that the US policymakers need to Keep this and keep be sober about this issue. That uh, that the missile program is something that we're not going to be able to really contain. And frankly, as part of as as part of the uh, at least from a political sense, uh, and that the uh, the how the deal worked itself out and the language that was in the final U.N. resolution uh, really was quite weak. I don't think it's going to be very difficult for us to do anything about it from a political sense. Now, on the other hand, we should take the missile program as a very serious strategic problem. Uh, and I think, and the U.S. policy has been oriented around this anyway for a long time, is that we have an intrinsic, uh, you know, need to find ways to prevent and mess with. The missile program we should be even enforcing you know the missile con- uh, technology control regime uh, we should be doing whatever we can to prevent iran from improving the capabilities of its missiles uh, uh, but which is which is the really key thing us being able to prevent their the volume of missiles they're producing is almost is very difficult at this point we have we they are almost autonomous in in their ability to to build missiles at this stage. Uh, There's very little we can do to change it. But the problem is that their missiles are still fairly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. uh, And if we can keep them inaccurate, that would be a very good thing for US interests. So whatever we can do in that regard would be be great. Uh, But I I think that US policymakers have this. I mean, I I get upset about the missile launches, too. I agree with you. I get upset about it. Uh, They shouldn't be doing it. But they're going to do it. There's not much we can do about it, uh, and we need to take this as the strategic problem for what it is. Okay,
0: Ellen, I want to come to you. I I am part of the South Asia Center of the Atlantic Council, and I want to look uh, to the other side of Iran as well. Uh, There have been quite credible reports, including in the Iranian press, that uh, the uh, late uh, head of the uh, Taliban, who was killed by the United States in a drone strike recently, had been in Iran uh, prior to his demise. Um, the Iranians uh, have apparently developed quite uh, robust relations with the Taliban um, over the last uh, few years, and perhaps really going going back, even though they helped overthrow the Taliban government back uh, after 9-11. Um, how do you see their involvement in Afghanistan? Is that an area where they might be able to possibly at least have discussions with, with the United States? Um, given this sort of hedging behavior, uh, is it possible, really, to to work with them on that issue? Uh,
3: Thanks, Barbara. So I think that Afghanistan is an important but not as important country for Iranian interests as some of the countries we've been talking about uh, so far. Um, There's a lot of cultural connections. The Hazara minority of Afghanistan has very, there are both Shia and linguistic and, and cultural connections between parts of Afghan society and Iran. Iran has housed, I think, the largest, until the Syrian crisis, the largest single group of refugees in the world were Afghans in Iran. Um, that Iran, in general, is praised by the UN for, you know, overall a very a good treatment of these refugees. It does occasionally um, do forced repatriations of, of Afghans that it can no longer support. Um, But I I think that we see the wily behavior of Iran uh, reaching out to any players that it thinks could be important, not because there's ideological solidarity, not because there's long-term bonds of, of shared interests, Uh, But I think this is something the Iranians and other Middle Eastern countries, to be sure, are are quite good at, is is keeping channels open to groups that you may want to manipulate or support for some tactical uh, purpose uh, sometime down the road. Um, I think, in general, Iran is not served by the resurgence of the Taliban. If the current government of Afghanistan were to fall and the Taliban were to return to power, this would be a net. Uh, negative for Mm -hmm. Iranian interests and Iranian policy. Um, In the past, we had talked about opportunities for the U.S. and Iran to work together in Afghanistan. I think as the U.S. uh, reduces its presence and has more modest objectives in Afghanistan, there may be, uh, and although that's debatable, some think that we should make a very long-term commitment to the uh, stability and development of Afghanistan, but um, I see perhaps slightly fewer opportunities uh, for cooperation there. Um, but I would like to bring in that where Iran engages with Afghanistan may align with India's role in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to think a little bit broader in the geopolitics of what's changing. And if India chooses to play a leadership role in an alternative Silk Road route, if you will, for mm-hmm. gas pipelines, for general trade, et cetera, I think Iran and India are perhaps natural partners in supporting a future for Afghanistan that stands in contrast to whatever Pakistan may see as its role in Afghanistan. So we have
0: to widen the lens a little bit to uh, fill out the story. And of course, there's a new agreement over the Chabahar port and, yes. and, and so on between Iran mm-hmm. and India. Um, I'm going to open up to questions. Uh, raise your hands, say who you are, and ask a question. So.
2: Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council and on, on Barbara's uh, Task Force for Iran. Uh, Russia has not come up yet in terms of discussion. And I wonder if you could elaborate on what you see Russia's role, obviously, in Syria, but also with Iran, and whether or not there may be some way that we, the United States, can leverage Russia to a more beneficial end than is currently taking place.
0: Who would like to uh, grab that? I mean, I can. Matt, you want
2: to? Yeah. Uh, certainly when it comes to the situation in Syria, uh, the, and I think this is actually one of the biggest uh, impacts of the nuclear deal was that open, there was a lot of behind the scenes activity between Iran and Russia leading up to the the nuclear deal being finalized. That as as the situation in Syria became... More dire for the Iranians, and in the first half of 2015, was not looking good for the Iranian side for Assad. Uh, and I think that the so, the the, 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 uh, the Syrian and and the Russian and the Iranian leadership all came to the same conclusion that if we're going to do so, we have to do something, and as soon as that nuke deal is signed, we can we can potentially execute. I think what's been fascinating with the Russia Iran relationship in Syria. Is it is in an unprecedented relationship since the night since 1979, mm-hmm. uh, because you you have a, a, a regime in Tehran that has been that came to power with a deep you know anti-imperialist anti-colonialist uh, anti you know world you know world system perspective, you know neither East nor West was Khomeini's uh, perspective, uh, and and the idea that they have in some ways subordinated some of their key strategic concerns in Syria to Russian interest. Uh, Not that there there are generally aligned for the most part, but I think there's an enormous fear inside Iran that eventually you know, Putin is going to sell out Assad for a broader deal as long as his interests in Syria are preserved. Uh, and I think that, that that at the end, the Russian and the and the Iranian relationship doesn't quite mesh. Uh, and, and because there's certainly no ideological alignment to and, it.
0: And the Russians are also staying close to the Israelis,
2: which yes, you see that. Yes, yeah, and they're the, and yeah. they're continuing to allow Israel to hit Hezbollah uh, and as well as Iranian uh, shipments to to Hezbollah. Uh, so I, and and of course, Russia has broader interests in the Middle East now than it does. It, than just Iran. They want relationships with Saudi, they want relationships obviously with Israel uh, and Egypt. Uh, so it, it, it really complicates Iran's position and it points to the fact as much as they may like to have some additional Russian backing occasionally, it points to the fact that they are in this, in, in preserving what they have built in Syria, and in the Levant. They're becoming increasingly backed into depending on others to, to preserve what they have. So I think it's going to be a very complicated situation moving forward between Iran and Russia.
0: Anybody else want to add on anything to that?
1: I, I would just underscore the, the incredibleness of a historic moment where Iran is welcoming Russia into the Middle East because right. the czars would be turning over in their, in their <laughs> graves at this moment.
2: I, I mean, going back to that, the, the previous panel, it's, it's almost more, it's more of a radical change inside the regime, that decision, than it was to engage in the nuclear negotiations with the US. Yeah. That, I, and we don't focus on this enough, but I, I think for me that is what is going on, that they're they either that desperate or there are some, some potential ideological changes in their foreign policy to allow this.
0: It's, you know, of course, the Russians occupied uh, part of Iran, Iranian Azerbaijan. You're absolutely, and and before that, split the whole split Persia with the Brits back uh, more than a hundred years ago. So that's a very good point. Yes, here, and this time a question, okay?
4: A question. A question, I please. I, I need to comment on two things <laughs> <But> to clarify <laughs> it at least. No, sorry, there is two inaccurate information said here. One is. It's not Saudi who said Iran control four capital Arab cities. It is Iran officials. Mohammed Sadiq, Al-Husseini, and Ali Akbar Velayati. So this is to to say another thing about Al-Mugassil. You mentioned Al-Mugassil. Saudi didn't announce that it captured Al-Mugassil. Officially didn't announce that. Who is actually involved in killing nineteen? American citizens in October 1996. Right. I will not, um, I have some points I will not want to pass. My question is, do you, and to you, uh, do you think that uh, Iran, when it's interfering in Syria and Iraq, especially after the nuclear deal, doesn't give bad impression to its citizens inside that they were trying to, to live better life after the, the nuclear deal, but now Iran spending more money outside and ignoring the inside, especially the, the minorities and all Iranian uh, people. So this is, I think, it's bad news for Iranian people. And so the question, how would Iranian people react to this point?
1: Thank you. Um, I suspect the Iranian people don't know how much of their gross domestic product is being spent uh, shoring up the Assad regime, or helping to assist the, uh, the Shia government in Baghdad. It's, uh, what I know of Iranian uh, defense purchases, you may know more, uh, they're not very transparent about any of that, uh, certainly not with their own people. Um, you're right, it was the Iranians who first said they controlled four Arab capitals, but that Saudi echo chamber on that has been very powerful and it's been in almost every Saudi op-ed on Iran, uh, in Al Arabiya for the last year. And it has a certain amount of truth to it. There's a certain amount of truth to it. I think it's exaggerated in the case of Sana'a, uh, less so in in, in in the other three cases. Um, the, uh... If if all of the peoples of the Middle East had a full understanding of how their governments are spending so much money purchasing arms, there should be an Arab and Iranian spring in every single one of these countries. Let's just for a minute talk about the US-Saudi relationship. President Obama has now sold Saudi Arabia in seven and a half years $111 billion in weapons. That is a staggering amount of money. Um, It is far more than Iran is spending on military purchases, than Syria is spending on military purchases. Uh, It amounts to 13% of Saudi Arabia's GDP, which means Saudi Arabia, with the possible exception of the UAE, spends more of its nation's wealth on weapons than any other country in the world. Now, one more caveat there. Uh, Israel would be up there except, of course, for the fact that the United States actually purchases $3 billion worth of arms for Israel every year. So it doesn't come out of their GDP. It comes out of your GDP. (laughs) So the numbers would be a little bit different if you did it that way.
0: can I add something, if I may, on the, on the question of how Iranians feel? I think that there's been a change in their attitude uh, that uh, before Daesh, before ISIS announced itself, uh, the intervention in Syria was very uh, unpopular. Mm-hmm. And particularly after the Syrians um, were shown to have used chemical weapons uh... there there was a complete Mm -hmm. revulsion in iran because of their experience being on the wrong end of chemical weapons during the iran iraq war from saddam hussein but the attitude shifted after daesh announced itself because iranians see this organization as even more virulently anti-shia than al-qaeda and as a real direct threat to them and i think this also explains Partly why they've hedged with the Taliban because they're, because ISIS has is now popped up in Afghanistan as well, and the Iranians would much rather. I mean, they don't want the Taliban back, but they certainly don't want ISIS in control of territory uh, on the other side of the country. So the the attitude has changed, but there are funerals very frequently now for IRGC people coming back from Syria, and. Uh, this is not something that is, is you know, popular in Iran. I think they accept that it's important to make sure that the battle against Daesh takes place in Iraq and Syria and not actually in Iran, where, as you point out, there are Sunni minorities, there are Kurds, there are Baluch that might be susceptible to, to ISIS propaganda. So it's part of strategic depth. Fight him over there. I mean, I'm sure Donald Trump would understand that. Fight him over there. Don't fight him here if you can do it. And and that's part of the philosophy. Uh, let me say one other thing. And this always troubles me about, about the Saudi uh, rhetoric on Iran. You always accuse the Iranians of interfering in Arab countries. Um, for Iran, which was an empire, Persian empire, with influence throughout the region, I don't think they see this distinction. I mean, even if you look at Iraq, uh, the the clerics in in Najaf, you know this is very important to Iran. So they don't see a neat distinction between uh, Arab and Persian in the same way that I think the Saudis are trying to uh, to advance this this particular uh, narrative. All the way in the back, I see a lady with her hand up. No, the uh, the the dark-haired lady first. Okay, and then then
5: the other lady. Um, Just this is real quick, Um, Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. A lot of Americans were upset that we released all the funds to Iran, but then we start looking at the relationship with Saudi and that a lot of the people in ISIS are educated with the Saudi curriculum. So then we look at Pakistan and they're the nuclear arm of Saudi. So um, when you look at the world, you think of energy independence, but then when I look at the whole Iran project, we have to look at them as a people that are different from their government. How can we do that when their government is doing these wacky things? Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. Interesting question. Hi. Nazanit Surush with IHS. And um, I wanted to ask the panelists to speak a little bit more about two interrelated topics, Um, one being uh, the Iran-Turkish rivalry doesn't really get as much attention as we talk about the Iran-Saudi rivalry, but it is another ongoing Mm -hmm. uh, sort of competition in the Middle East. And I wanted you to expand on that a little bit more and the prospects of that going forward. Um, Iran Iranians and Turks, um, they tend to try to divide their political security versus uh, from their economic. So uh, mm-hmm. a little bit more on that. Um, and interrelated to that, um, dynamics between Iran and Turkey um, unfolding with the uh, Kurdistan regional government, uh, with the different Kurdish groups uh, and how they're trying to um, sort of position themselves. Um, the, you know, you saw the uh, recent agreement with PUK and Goran, um, mm. Iran-backed Kurdish groups and how that will unfold going forward. Okay.
0: Let me take one more because we're getting close uh, close to the end. Joe,
5: let me take from you here in the front.
2: Um, Matt, could you tell me why you think Iran gave up, d- decided against developing a nuclear
3: weapon in 2010? I'd like to hear that analysis, and by the way, they, the staff mistook me for you before the st- before the panel and wanted to mic me up <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am flattered by the comparison
5: okay. that was, that was just <laughs> uh,
0: uh-huh. Matt, why don't we start with that question uh okay. from joe and then we'll move to the the area the kurdish question which i think is very interesting
2: Yeah, I think that this is uh, something that, uh, and again, I have to you know draw from some of this from my time in government when this was going on, and and be be careful about what I say. Uh, But I think that there was a a a decision that, uh, you know, strategic that strategically it did not make sense for them to go for a weapon at that point in time. Uh, That you know they were in a position, given the pressure that they were going to be under. In the region, if they went forward with it, between Israel, obviously the U.S. as well as how the Saudis and others could respond in kind, uh, I think that there was they they were they were pressured enough that if they were going to do it, coming out North Korea style, uh, you know, with a couple of weapons, two or three weapons. I think would, would hem them in in a way that they wouldn't have that r- room for maneuver that they would want if they were ever going to go that far. If you're gonna get a nuclear weapon, have something that would potentially have a second strike capability. Uh, they you know, come out, and I think this is in the end what I think many in the leadership want to do or their long-term vision is if you, if you are going to do it, come out like Pakistan in 98 mm-hmm. uh, and come out with an actual survivable arsenal small arsenal that you can then build upon. And I think that there was a decision that they still wanted to have, they wanted to continue on after that decision to continue building the capabilities eventually. But I think that's the reason why the nuclear deal made so much sense to the leadership uh, is that they, they weren't gonna go for a weapon now. And they need to get their R&D and other capabilities in better shape to really go for something significant if they ever chose to do so. Uh, And and obviously the the isolation, the economic pressure, um, and all that kind of added up to the Supreme Leader to make, hey, this is what we should do. Uh, This is worth worth trading away because we don't want it right now anyway. Uh, And I think that that was something that it took us, I think it took us a while to figure that out. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that during the nu- nuclear negotiations, at least in my small writings on this, I encourage the U.S. side to recognize they have, you know, the Supreme Leader is fully behind a deal, and we should press for as hard a deal as we can possibly can in that situation. They were not, this is, there is consensus. They're not going for a weapon right now, uh, and we can get something that really hems in their program if we try.
0: Let me ask about Turkey and about the Kurdish question. I mean, we have in Syria now and in Iraq a situation where certainly Kurds are more and more empowered. uh, They're our primary ally, uh, certainly in Syria right now and trying to go after uh, Raqqa uh, and whatnot. Um, How does this affect Iranian interests? Uh, Are they fine with it? Uh, Are they concerned about about, uh, their own Kurdish populations?
3: Uh, I think traditionally, uh, Turkey and Iran had a lot in common of worrying about Kurdish separatism and any possible loss of territory. Um, and I assume that is still somewhere on Iran's list, it's much higher on Turkey's list, of something that feels uh, very uh, acutely threatening. Um, so I think that Turkey and Iran are sort of friendly rivals and have been for a long time. Their relative size and ability to, they are both unique cultures. They don't have neighbors that necessarily speak the same language. and. Etc. So they and they are former empires. There's just a lot of parallels to the story. Uh, Turkey was very helpful to Iran after the revolution. I mean, millions of Iranians uh, used Turkey as a platform to get out to the rest of the world, etc. But I think that as Turkey has sort of peaked as a you know bridge country and is now by many people's views, contracting a little bit, in part because of the leadership of Erdogan and uh, turning inward a bit, um, uh, Iran now sees maybe an opportunity to match Turkey. I think that Iran was probably jealous of Turkey's success, its relationship with Europe, its uh, economic success of the last two decades, et cetera. And I think Iran probably does see an opportunity to uh, compete with Turkey in a more uh, assertive way as a natural leader in the region. Turkey, of course, always had other options. It wasn't deeply interested in the Middle East when it was more oriented to Europe. Iran, in the end, I think, uh, is per- predominantly sees itself as a Middle Eastern country. Okay, so, uh, yeah.
0: I think we have time for one more. One more question. Ms. Stone right here in the front. Wait for the mic.
2: Hi, John Hudson with Foreign Policy magazine. Um, uh, maybe Bruce or Matt, um, could you just Try to pin down what the substance of, uh, or do your best you can, of pinning down uh, what extent of support does Iran provide the Houthi rebels uh, in Yemen?
1: Um, that's a very, very good question. There's no question. There is a long-standing relationship between both Iran and Hezbollah and the Houthi rebels. Um, this includes some financial support, uh, not significant. I mean, not in terms of the way Washington thinks about money, but by Yemeni standards, uh, important. But there's there's a f- fundamental difference here. Um, uh, Hezbollah sees itself as uh, uh, a close ally of the Iranian Revolution. And it uh, sees the uh, supreme leader as in many ways its supreme leader. The Houthis don't see that at all. The, the Houthis, uh, may have made some really dumb moves a year ago, February and March. Uh, they, they looked at every button that they could press to get the Saudis uh, alarmed, and they then banged each one of those buttons over and over again. But the notion that they are the equivalent of the Hezbollah in Yemen, I think, is is very misleading. Okay. Uh, and. When we think about the, the Yemen war, we also have to remember that the Houthis are only part of the alliance, and the other part of the alliance is Ali Abdullah Saleh, and Ali Abdullah Saleh has, no, has never been anyone's proxy except for about an hour or so when you rent him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you want to add anything no, more on Yemen? I, I
1: just, I can say for, those of
2: us at the American Enterprise Institute, we do all believe that the Houthis are not a proxy of of Iran. And I just want to be I think Bruce is absolutely right about this. I, I, I do think that there is there is a strategic vision that the IRGC has. Uh, and as well as many of the, the kind of, what I consider the Iranian religious cultural outreach to the, the, the Houthis over the years, they would like to bring the Houthis more into that fold, into that, that are more ideologically and religiously aligned uh, to where Iran would like them to go. They're, they're, the Houthis are kind of resistant to that at times. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, for Iran, Iran's always gonna be limited in what it can do in Yemen because of logistics and trying to get through moving stuff by, by sea or, or over uh, Saudi or Imani territory. So I think that for, for you know, it doesn't represent what, what Syria or Iraq represents. The, the challenge, though, is if they actually do establish something significant in Yemen over time, which I, I doubt, but if they did, was, is you, ha- you create this interesting cycle of once you create your Hezbollah, it becomes an existential fight for you to keep it. So right. even if it was an opportunistic effort, which I mean, you look at Lebanon in 1982 for the Iranians, that you know, and what eventually ended up creating Hezbollah, that was an opportunity. It wasn't necessarily an existential issue for them to get involved in the fight against Israel there. Uh, it was an ideological opportunity. But then over time, right. it becomes essential for them to pr- preserve it. And That's one of the things I worry about: is Iran, you know, gets if it finally does settle some of these fights in Syria and Iraq and so forth, that once it can start turning back to the opportunistic picture as opposed to purely preserve what we have. That's what I worry about is if we're not pushing back or trying to hem that in some, we're gonna end up with a whole bunch of other places in the region that Iran is going to fight to the last, you know, sometimes proxy militia of theirs, but occasionally even on IRGC or other guys to preserve. And that's that's what I, I worry about.
0: Okay. Well on that note we're gonna close this panel. Ben Rhodes is next. Thank you all very much. Thank you.